Well, I certainly hope you're enjoying this beautiful weather. I know I am. Yes, amen. I was up early this morning and had a chance to take a walk and uh, looking over the the sermon notes and preparing my heart. And I got to the end of the the neighborhood and uh, I saw a little boy. And as I got closer, he was probably four, maybe five. And I got closer and closer and he took a rock and he threw it and hit this brand new truck. And I said to him, you probably shouldn't throw the rock at the truck. And he said, oh, it's my dad's. <laughs> okay, then. And I continued my walk. Would you turn with me this morning to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 8. We've concluded the Gospel of John, and for our next series, we will uh, take the summer months to walk through a study that I have entitled Summer in the Psalms. And we will go through in rather random fashion and look at select psalms together. The title of the message this morning is The Mad Dash for Meaning. I want to invite you to stand to your feet as we read Psalm 8 together. This is the word of the Lord. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we're excited uh, to open the Word of God once again, and I know I'm excited, God, to uh, dig deeply for the next few months into uh, the pages of the Psalms. Lord, uh, I ask that you would encourage your people. I ask that our, our hearts and minds would be fixated on who you are, our, our God and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who took the penalty for all our sins on the cross of Calvary. Would you remind us graciously this morning of the power of the gospel? Would you help us to see wonderful things in your law? And on this beautiful day, would we uh, delight in your word? Help us to delight in the gospel during these moments. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Chris Cornell. I don't know if you're familiar with Chris Cornell. He was the lead singer in the grunge band Soundgarden. He stepped onto the platform at the Fox Theater in Detroit, Michigan, on Wednesday, May 17th, just a few days ago. Two hours after the show ended, he was dead. Medical examiners soon determined that he had hung himself. I'm going to show you a picture of Chris and get an idea of who we're talking about here. We have technical problems today. It's not working. Chris Cornell is a a gentleman who is memorialized as the so-called father of of rock, the the elder statesman of rock. He is a 
a father in real life. He was a, a philanthropist. And one author in an article about this gentleman goes on to describe how the singer battled depression most of his life. And this writer uh, put a piece together that I actually greatly appreciated. He sympathized with the singer as he too, the writer, battled symptoms of depression for most of his life. Here's what he writes. He says, It's a dark shadow that shows itself at any point in time without warning. It surrounds us, isolates us, and quiets us. Depression likes to blame things. He goes on to say that after 26 years of trying to destigmatize depression, some of us still have a hard time recognizing it for what it is. And even then, it doesn't always matter. Later in the article, the writer continues, and he writes about grunge music or grunge rock, and that's the genre he focuses on. He says this, You might think that grunge is about anger, but that's not completely true. Yes, it can sound that way, but it's really about depression and cynicism. Those two go hand in hand, along with their nasty little sister, anxiety. When the three of them get going, they just, they just uh, eat hope as quickly as it can be summoned. And that leaves despair, and despair is exhausting. Not just for those who experience it, but for the people around it as well. And so we, as a result, we keep it to ourselves because we don't want to be a burden to other people. And when it gets to be too much, it doesn't matter if you're a student or a mom or an accountant or a rock star. It doesn't matter if you've written about it your entire life as a means of keeping it at bay. It doesn't matter if the music you made about it brought in fame, respect, and millions of dollars. It doesn't matter if your entire generation has suffered from it. Depression makes you feel totally alone. You hit the breaking point, and then like Chris Cornell, you die alone in the bathroom. It had been minutes from the point of hearing about Chris Cornell's death that I immediately, almost intuitively, went to the website, and I searched out for Soundgarden's particular URL, and I wanted to see what the band had been up to, and I noticed that the band had a full tour schedule in front of them. And so I asked, why? Why would a successful musician choose to end his life, really in the, in the heyday of his career? The Frenchman, Blaise Pascal, gives us an answer that I think is insightful. And he wrote these words many, many years ago. He says this, All people seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Blaise Pascal argues that the reason some people take their lives is for happiness, for all people seek happiness. For this successful singer, ultimate meaning in his life had evidently run its course, and he tragically ended his life. For other people, 
The mad dash for meaning is less severe than suicide, but it is filled with tragedy and horror nonetheless. I want you to think about someone who you may be more familiar, familiar with, and you will all recognize this photograph. This is John Lennon. John Lennon and the other Beatles, you may remember if you're old enough to go back that far. At one point in their careers, they sought out the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. This was in 1968. And they did it because they were in search of meaning. I want you to see if you can discern, put your, your thinking caps on this morning, and ask yourself when you hear the lyrics to this song that John Lennon wrote, ask yourself, did he achieve his goal of coming to the point of ultimate meaning? The title of the song is simply God. And here are the few words that surface in the song. Lennon says, I don't believe in magic. I don't believe in I Ching. I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe in tarot. I don't believe in Hitler. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in Kennedy. I don't believe in Buddha. I don't believe in mantra. I don't believe in Gita. I don't believe in yoga. I don't believe in kings. I don't believe in the Beatles. And then Lennon says this, I just believe in me. There in a few words, you have the, the worldview of one of the most talented and famous singers of all of human history say, I just believe in me. My suspicion is that none of you have never taken a, a pilgrimage to India in search of enlightenment and sought out the counsel of a guru. But I do know this, that each of us is on a quest for meaning. Each of us on a, are on a mad quest to, to find our niche. What Michael W. Smith in one of his songs probably 20 years ago said it like this, we're trying to find our place in the world. Each of us is on a mad dash for meaning. And your, your path, your individual path, may include an assortment of things. Some of those things are very good things. Some of those things are very bad things. Solomon, as well, had everything under the sun. And in the final analysis, he came to and regarded it as vanity, a mere chasing after the wind. As we look at our passage in Psalm chapter 8 today, we will see this reality surfacing. And I want to give you the truth point in advance today. And that is that the mad dash for reality, the mad dash for meaning, begins by acknowledging the fame of God and by admitting the finitude of the creature. I want to begin in verse 1 by acknowledging the fame of God. If we are to ever have real meaning in life, we must come to this place. And this is a place that many people in our culture are utterly unwilling to consent to. And that is, we must acknowledge the fame of God. Look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, acknowledging the fame of God means that we confess His greatness. We acknowledge that He is to be renowned, that He is to be praised, that He is to be worshipped. I find it interesting that uh, a figure like John Lennon can say, I believe in myself. 
Years and years later, you have another songwriter, a songwriter who is less known, and a songwriter who said this in a song that he penned several years ago. He said, You are the Lord, the famous one, famous one. Great is your name in all the earth. The heavens declare you're glorious, glorious. Great is your fame in all the earth. You see, when Chris Tomlin penned those words, he was really parroting Scripture. Chris Tomlin was was acknowledging the fame of God. And so this morning, I want to, to rivet your attention on the fame of our great and glorious God. There are at least four reasons that I see in this passage for His fame. The first is found in verse 1 as well. And that is that our God is majestic. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word majestic in the Hebrew means mighty. It means magnificent. It means strong. It's a word that means awesome. It means beautiful in appearance. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the Psalms are are replete with examples of His majesty. Psalm 76.4 says, Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. Or 1 Chronicles 29.11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and all that is in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Or consider Job 37, verse 22. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed in awesome majesty. I want you to notice for a moment and to, to meditate for a moment, to linger for a moment in that first verse. And notice how David addresses the majestic name of God. You see, David doesn't have a a speech problem. He doesn't have a stuttering problem. He says this, O Lord, our Lord. Literally, Jehovah, our Adonai. That first word, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the Hebrew word that can be translated as Jehovah or Yahweh. And this is the personal name of God. This is the name of God that stresses His sovereign and almighty authority over the creature. John Frame says, So the name of God, the the name by which He wants His people especially to remember Him forever, is Yahweh, or Lord. Then look at the second name that David pens. It's capital L, little o, little r, little d. That's from the Hebrew word Adonai, which means the sovereign master. This is the one who has absolute dominion over all of creation. And the name stresses his ownership over all things. Have you ever thought about that? That God, we we like to say God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And indeed that is true. But God owns so much more and he owns each of us. Now look also in verse 1 at the scope of the majesty, rather the, the, the scope of the majestic influence. David says, you have set your glory above the heavens. That is, the, the majesty of God is, is filling the earth. The glory of God is filling the earth. I love Habakkuk 2.14 
where we read that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And next week, we will begin a new emphasis at Christ Fellowship. It's something that we will see on a monthly basis during our either call to worship or even as part of the message. And we're calling it For the Nations. And what will happen on a monthly basis, the first Sunday of every month, is we will highlight a nation. Next week, we will highlight the Czech Republic. And over the last few weeks, I've been convicted that as a, as a church family, we are really tuned in to Whatcom County. We're really tuned in to uh, Everson and, and Nooksack and Sumas and Linden and parts of Bellingham. But some of us are not very tuned in to the nations. And so I think it's time for us as a church family to learn about what's happening in other nations, to learn what the dominant worldviews are there, to learn what the dominant religions are, to, to learn what's happening with church planters, to learn about what the, what the persecution is like, especially in the church with believers. And also to ask ourselves, how can we pray for the nations? Not just our missionaries in particular, and that's so good that we do that, but to also pray for people that we have never met and the people that we will meet one day when we're with them for all eternity in heaven. Here we see in Habakkuk 2 that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Why? Because God has a heart for the nations. And wouldn't you agree that if God has a heart for the nations, that, that you and I should have a heart for the nations as well. The first reason for the fame of God is that God is majestic. Second, I want you to see that God is a God of great glory. Verse 1 says, You have set your glory above the heavens. I, for as long as I can remember, have been fascinated and intrigued with the word glory. It's a word that means weightiness. The word means splendor or power. It means brightness. One writer says it's a quality of God's character that points to his authority. Do you hear the authority of God in both his name and his attributes? He is God. He is in charge. As we'll see in a moment, he is the creator. We are the creature. We will illustrate that for you vividly in just one moment. Once again, the Word of God is replete with examples that help us to understand that God is a glorious God. First Chronicles 16.27 says, Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. Psalm 96.6, Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty in His sanctuary. Or Psalm 104, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Oh my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. It's interesting as the psalmist will say things like, Oh Lord, my God. May I just share as one of your shepherds how different it is to say, Oh Lord, my God, than to say, Oh my God. I know I may be dating myself. I may sound like a fuddy-duddy old preacher. But do you know what we do when we say, oh, my God? We blaspheme the living God. Do you know what we do? And this is where it gets really, really personal. 
online, when we say OMG, do you know what we do when we say OMG? Would someone just shout it out so I don't have to say it? We blaspheme the living God. You see here, what we see in Psalm 104, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God. It's not an expression, rather it is an act of worship. And so as the people of God, we are very careful with our language. And if you hear these words this morning, you say to yourself, I had no idea what I was doing. Here's my counsel to you, is you, you run to God and you say, God, whether I knew what I was doing or not, I confess it to you. I want to acknowledge the fame of God. And one of the ways I acknowledge the fame of God is by using your names in, in appropriate ways. I can remember a time when someone close to our family used to utter the phrase, Oh my God, in a derogatory way. And Abby, our daughter, was, oh, about three or four years old at the time. And she picked up on this because she heard it over and over and over again like a dripping faucet. And out of the lips of my daughter came the phrase, Oh my, right? And so I went to the person who was uttering those words, and I, I asked her, or I, rather I told her, I said, Here, here's what's happening. We, we love you, we care about you, but when you say, oh my God, I don't know what your motives are, but you're teaching our daughter to say the same, and you just need to understand this, is if my daughter says that, she will be punished. So I want to encourage you to use the name of God in a, in a reverent way, in an honoring way. So God is a God who is majestic. He is a God of great glory. Number three, look at verse two. The psalmist says, Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. That is, God possesses complete sovereign power. Complete sovereign power. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Number four, in verse three. The psalmist continues, When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, and we break into the context here and confess together and acknowledge the fame of God by realizing that He created all things. And some of you have heard me say this over and over and over again. Talk about a dripping fountain, a dripping faucet. But we return to this over and over again because it is so foundational to the fabric of Scripture, that God is the Creator. Acts 17 says, The Lord, or the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives breath to all mankind, life and breath and everything. That is, He created it all. He created it all. Colossians 1.16 Speaking of Jesus, for by Him, that is, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And so King David, he continues to acknowledge the fame of God. He is the, the absolute personal God. 
He is the God who establishes creation. He is the God who upholds creation. He is the God who rules creation and sustains his creation. I want you to look at something for a moment in verse 3. I want you to look for a moment at the words, when I look. When I look. Because David's look here is really, really instructive. I believe this is an intentional look. It's an intentional look. He is, he is gazing on the, the amazing beauty of God. Secondly, it's a, it's a focused look. That is to say, it's a determined look. It's also an obedient look. It's a disciplined look. It is an extended look. It is a reverent look. He is fixated on the living God. And he likes what he sees. When we contemplate the Creator... We are careful not to impose our views of what we want God to be like. Rather, we search out the scriptures which reveal a true vision of God. You see, when we open our Bibles and we gaze upon creation, we should be captivated and consumed by who God is. We are to be blown away by His majesty and His power, and His glory. It's interesting that as I talk about OMG and using the name of God reverently, I remember, and I may have shared this years ago, but I remember I was on my way to Wednesday night church with my mom, and I was reading my Bible, preparing some memory work, as Ken described earlier. And I remember experiencing this. I remember being captivated by His majesty and His glory and His power and His sovereignty. And I say this in quotes, and I know the Lord understands. I remember reading this. My mom was at the wheel, and I said, God! And boy, did I get a lesson that day. Wow! I learned that day that I am never to utter the name of God in that sense. I learned real quick that that God is holy, holy, holy. And so when we utter the name of God, we are uttering the name of God to, to worship God or to tell people about the glories of the living God. Now, once we have established a God-centered view of God, we can turn our attention to contemplating the creature in all, all in light of God's attributes. Number one, we acknowledge the fame of God. Number two, we admit something. We admit the finitude of the creature. And I want to talk for a moment about what finitude means. I want to have uh, the Bruin boys come up and, and help me out with something here. Keith and Kevin and Cody, come on up here. In fact, let's just, let's just sit right here. You want to sit right here? All right, Kevin. So, could I give you guys a little quiz? That'd be good. What's finitude mean? You know what I would have said when a pastor asked me what finitude means? I would have said, when I was your age, I would have said, I have no idea. How many of you say, I have no idea? Finitude. Finitude, or to be finite. It means, it means if, if, you, if you're finite, it means you're limited. Now, we've just described God, who is majestic and glorious and sovereign. He's the creator. There are no limits with God. He is 
infinite. But Keith, Cody, and Kevin, Pastor Dave, we're not infinite, are we? We're finite. And so I want to I illustrate what that means. You know what this is? What is it? It's sugar. It's actually sweet and low, which most of our parents would say, yeah, it's better than sugar. I disagree. I think it tastes horrible. I'm going to give you one speck. Can you take one speck? It actually worked. Wow. Let me see if I can give you, Cody, one speck. You got a little bit more, didn't you? All right. Kevin, you got two. I want you to hold that speck up and think about that for a second. That speck is an example of what we're like when we compare ourselves to God. So I want to read a scripture for you. It's a scripture that's found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15 to begin with. Are you listening? Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now listen to this. Do you guys like grasshoppers? Like, I love grasshoppers. They're so cool. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. So think about this. The living God, glorious and majestic and sovereign, the one who created all things, And what are we like? By the way, this is me too. And everyone here, we're like a speck of sugar. Can you imagine that? That's that's how we shape up when we compare ourselves with the living God. So that makes him look really, 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 really big, right? And it makes us look, this is a test, Cody, makes, makes us look really, 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 really small. Or tiny, or teeny, or teensy, right? The living God and tiny, tiny creatures. And so, why don't you guys stand up? I want to give you something. And I want to give each of you, this is probably the lamest gift I've ever given in one of these illustrations. You get a pack of sugar, right? And I want you to take that pack of sugar, or sweet and low, and put it on your desk or on your dresser drawer at home, and every time you see it, you remember that compared to God, I'm just a speck of sugar, and that will cause you to worship Him. Does that sound good? All right. Thanks for help. Appreciate it. Why don't you give Him a hand? We not only acknowledge the fame of God... We also admit the, the finitude of the creature. That is, the creature is finite. That is, the creature has limits. I like to call this creaturely insignificance. And if, if you struggle with that, we're going to take it further in a moment. But we need to remember that as creatures, we are in this respect, we are like a, a piece of, of sugar, We are like a a grain of sand when we compare ourselves with the majestic, glorious, sovereign, awesome God of the universe. 
A few weeks ago, I cited from the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. I want to rehearse that with you. You should be very familiar with, familiar with it by now. It's also in your notes. Men are never duly in, uh, touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance. That's creaturely insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. I want you to think about when it was legal in the NFL, right, to to dance a jig in the end zone. Tom, didn't they bring that? The rule has been changed, I think. I heard now they can do it again, so it's going to be kind of interesting, right? Icky woods, like the icky shuffle. I won't, I won't do it for you, all right? <laughs> it could get ugly. But think about that. Here we are, insignificant. We Creaturely insignificance, and you catch a football on a grass field, and the next thing you know, you're dancing a jig in front of 60,000 people. This is weird. This is really weird. We need to remember who we are and how we stack up under the sovereign pleasure of God. A passing thought about the vastness of the universe should leave every creature in awe. When we consider that the planet we live on is a speck in a solar system on the edge of billions of solar systems in the universe, we get a sense at our creaturely insignificance. We get an idea of how tiny we are. The late James Boyce said, We know that light coming to us from the most distant parts of the universe take billions of years to get here. And so when we gaze at the stars, we acknowledge our finitude. We acknowledge our littleness. We affirm what we're calling creaturely insignificance. But I want to have you move forward with me in this passage because creaturely insignificance is not the end of the story. I want to ask a follow-up question. That is, how does God view these tiny, tiny creatures? And there's three things that surface in the remainder of our passage. The first thing he does is he expresses delight in his creation. Look at verse 4. It's a, it's, a, it's a verse that should shake you to your very core. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? You see, God is mindful of the creature. That is, he remembers your name. If you go to jail, what will happen? You will be assigned a number. You essentially lose your name. In some schools, in some institution, you're, you're a name, in a, rather, you're a number on a computer. God remembers your name. Moreover, verse 4 says that God cares for the creature. That is, He provides for the needs of our welfare and our health and our ongoing maintenance and also for all of our protection. Isaiah 40.11 says, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those with young. Then something very interesting happens in verse 5. If you read it with me, You have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Looking at the Hebrew, the phrase heavenly beings is the Hebrew word Elohim. That is, we've been made a little lower than God himself. 
move forward, God has crowned him with glory and honor. That is, God has made creatures in his image. And as we shall see here in a moment, he has also given them dominion over the animals. What an incredibly sad thing it is to see all around us in our culture that instead of being conformed to all that God has for us, instead of being conformed to the image of Christ, the creature becomes more like the beast of the field, like Nebuchadnezzar. We gravitate to the creation instead of the creator. Boyce continues, he says, Western society has lost sight of God. It no longer sees man as a creature made in God's image whose chief end is to glorify and enjoy him forever. It has eliminated God from its collective conscience, close quote. And we see, for instance, on university campuses all over America where God has been taken out of the discussion. Where if any student dare to utter the name of Jesus Christ, let alone his, his sacrifice on the cross for our sins, you are castigated, you are marginalized, you are persecuted. And some even reflect their views in poor grades that professors give them. There's something else we see that God not only has a delight in his creation, we see the word distinction in verse 5. Distinction, that is, the, the, the creature is distinct from God. It's what we call the creator-creature distinction, where God is totally independent of his creation. God has no needs, yet the creature is totally dependent upon God for everything. And so we as the creatures are, are completely distinct from God. And as such, and this is important, we are in covenant relationship with God. All people, both Christians and non-Christians alike, are in this covenant relationship where we are called upon to obey the living God. One writer puts it like this, That obligation of obedience comes by virtue of our being created. We were created as covenant beings. We are people who by nature have an obligation to worship and serve the Creator. That much has been true since the beginning. This might be a new concept for you to hear that all of creation is in covenant with God. And I would draw your attention to, excuse me, to Romans chapter 1, where we see that there's a big problem for many people who are considered creatures. Romans 1 says that the creature exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. The Bible continues in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, to say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6 continues by saying that we are under the wrath of God if we choose to run away from this covenant-keeping God, to refuse His rightful ownership of us. And so while God delights in His creature, there is also a distinction, an important distinction between the Creator and the creature. And the best way we can remember it is this. He is God, and I am not. He is God, and I am not. Finally, would you look at verse 6 with me? We've seen that God has a, an absolute delight in His creation. We've seen the distinction between God and the creation. And then finally, verse 6 describes dominion. Dominion. 
David says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. God has given the creature dominion over all things. He has forged a stewardship agreement with the creatures. And the dominion that God has given his, given each of us over creation does not give us a right to destroy it or mishandle it. Rather, we maintain it. We maintain it knowing that one day God will renew all things and all things will become new. And so we admit together, we admit the the finitude of the creature. We admit that the creature is limited and has limits. We admit that we are small. We admit that we are sinful. We admit that we are fallen. Yet, God delights in us. God cares for us. And indeed, He has crowned us with glory and honor. I want you to imagine this. The, The majestic, glorious, sovereign creator God delights in these little specks of sugar. That is to say, He delights in His creation. This is the perspective, I believe, that all peoples need. Because every person is on a mad dash for meaning. Some people think they find uh, meaning in a relationship. Others think they find meaning in, a, in a, a, a yacht or a boat of some kind or a pile of money. Other people like Chris Cornell, who died just a few days ago, they give up the quest for meaning altogether. It's absolutely tragic. The mad dash for meaning begins by acknowledging the fame of God and admitting the finitude of the creature. And I need to say this morning that to acknowledge the the fame of God and to admit the finitude of the creature is tantamount to saving faith. Francis Schaeffer said many years ago, salvation is bowing and accepting God as creator and Christ as savior. He says, I must bow twice to become a Christian. I must bow and acknowledge that I am not autonomous. I am a creature created by the Creator. And I must bow and acknowledge that I am a guilty sinner who needs the finished work of Christ for my salvation. This morning, I want to leave you with three principles. Three principles to help us to remember how to apply these truths from Psalm chapter 8. The first is this, is to rivet your attention on God. You see, God must be the first and foremost in our thoughts. He must be the first and foremost if we are to ever have any hope of having a a solid, foundational Christian worldview. Number two, remember, remember the finitude of the creature. Remember that the creature has limits because it influences how we think about ourselves. Francis Schaeffer wrote in another book, he says that there are no little people. And so what's ironic here is we're saying that the creature is so tiny, like a, like a speck of sand or a grain of salt or a, a piece of sugar. Yet, he also says that insignificant person has great worth in the eyes of God. It influences how we think about other people, people made in His image. It influences how we see the, the, the sex trade industry. 
It influences how we see the sin of abortion. It influences how we talk about immigration. It influences all of these different things to view people as image bearers of the living God. Number three, the call to return to our God. This morning, some of you may need to be reconciled to God. You have never come to Him in faith. Some of you simply need to return to your first love. You've been walking with Jesus for many months or many years, and today's the day you need to return to your first love. The rebellious creature at the end of the day must be reconciled to the Creator. The sinful creature must acknowledge that God is God and that He is not, and that the Lord Jesus Christ came to live a perfect life on this earth. And that he paid the price for our sins on a cross. That he was buried in the ground. And that three days later, God raised him from the dead so that we would have eternal life. The mad dash for meaning begins by acknowledging the fame of God. And by admitting the finitude of the creature. And I must tell you this, if you come to the end of your quest, if you come to the end of your quest and the cross is nowhere to be found, if you come to the end of your journey and the cross is not standing before you, you have been duped. You have been deceived. If you come to the end of your journey and you you find a pot of gold, you have been duped. You have been deceived. Have you acknowledged the fame of God and your finitude before Him? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ who enables every creature who believes on His name and turns from their sin to stand righteous before a holy God? One day, all of His people, all of us who confess faith in Christ, will stand together on the new earth and enjoy the living God and one another for all eternity. I don't know about you, but I can't wait. Let's pray together. Father, help us as we make make our, our way through the Psalms, at least a few of the Psalms this summer. May we be captivated by who you are to revel in your majesty, in your glory, in your sovereignty, to acknowledge that that you, in fact, are the creator of all things. And God, we also, this morning, in this time of silence, we admit our finitude. We acknowledge that we have limits. We have a lot of limits. And in light of those, lim- <laughs> in light of those limits, we, we cry out to you that you would show your kindness to us, that you would show your mercy to us. And if there's anyone here who is yet to bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, that perhaps today would be the day of salvation. God, these are exciting days for our church family. I pray that as we uh, continue forward, that the gospel would be at the very center of everything we say and do. That it would be the, the, the very essence of everything that we participate in in our lives. We trust you to do great things in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.